Hey, it's Andy. Welcome or welcome back to the Brownsbridge Church podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to download the Brownsbridge Church app where you can access all of our recent message content as well as find out more information about Brownsbridge Church. And the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Um, as you're having a seat, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever noticed? Um, have you ever noticed how something can be really, really special to you, uh, but to other people, it can just look ordinary. It can just look normal. Like maybe for you, there's a family heirloom, and it's been passed down through the generations, and it sits on a shelf in your house, and people walk in and out of your house, friends, neighbors, whatever. They don't even notice the thing standing or sitting on your shelf, but. To you, it really means a lot. To them, it's ordinary. To you, it's extraordinary. I noticed this a couple weeks ago. I was at my brother's house for my niece's birthday party. And I was walking around the kitchen table. And I ended up, there was this kind of old chair, really small wood. looked like an antique of some sort. I accidentally kicked it as I was walking around the chair and ended up sitting down. And his mother-in-law was sitting there. And after I got seated, she said, you know, my grandfather made that chair. And all of a sudden, I felt kind of bad for kicking it. I wanted to be like, hey, look, it was an accident, okay? Like, I, I didn't mean to do that. But I started to ask her some questions, and she said, yeah, my, my grandfather made that chair, and my mother was a baby in that chair, and, and then I was a baby in that chair, and then my daughter, who's my sister-in-law, she was a baby in that chair, and then their two daughters have both been fed in that chair as little babies. And it dawned on me that, to me, this was just kind of something that was a little bit in the way and I was trying to kind of get around and and get seated. But to her, it took on much more meaning. It was ordinary to me and it was extraordinary to her. Uh, Another way this plays out, wives, uh, don't, don't call out your husbands when I bring up this example, but your husband may have a t-shirt that is uh, pretty faded. It may have some stains on it. It may have some holes in it. I mean, it is just an ordinary shirt to you. It's actually an old and dirty shirt. And you would love nothing more than to throw that shirt in the trash and never seen it again, never see it again. But your husband, your husband's like, no, you can't throw that away, right? He's like, no, honey, that, that's, that's my good luck shirt. You know, there, there's some story behind the shirt. That's the shirt that I wore when we played in the state championship in 1992, you know? Or, or it's the shirt that I was wearing when the, when the Braves won the World Series in 1995. And thankfully we have a newer example of that. Uh, you know, there's, there's some story that, that comes with the shirt. And, and uh, some of you may say, well, no, my shirt, my husband doesn't have one shirt. He actually has multiple shirts like that. And to you, they're ordinary. But to him, it's extraordinary. Have you ever noticed this? It's true of all of us in life. Maybe an example is coming to mind for you of something in your life that falls into this category. But we experience something personal. We experience something specific. We experience something powerful with this thing. And all of a sudden, it takes on a greater meaning for us. And now it's more than just a thing. It's more than just a person. It's more than just a place. And again, this is true of people all around the world. 
true of every one of us, but specifically for followers of Jesus, if you consider yourself a person of faith, a Christian, if you've been following him for any amount of time, our journey with God, our relationship with God is actually marked by these things. There's certain people, there's certain places in our lives that are ordinary to everyone else, but they are extraordinary to us because God has used those things in a specific way to grow our faith. We can all point to something in our lives that falls into this category. Maybe it's um, a certain place at college when you started going to that Bible study and that's the place where you first put your faith and your trust in Jesus. And now it's no longer just a coffee shop. That's the place where your faith began. Maybe it's a certain song. Uh, You hear that song and every time you hear that song, you're just moved because you're reminded of a season of your life when God really was doing something special, doing something unique, growing your faith in a unique way. Maybe, uh, Maybe it's a Bible verse. And to everyone else, they can kind of hear the Bible verse and they just kind of move on. But for you, that Bible verse has so much meaning because you heard it taught on one time and it was in a specific season of your life when you needed to hear that very verse. And now what seems ordinary to everyone else and may be ordinary for everyone else is extraordinary to you. When God uses something in our lives, that's what happens. The ordinary becomes extraordinary. For me, uh, one of the examples is a gas station. You curious to hear (laughs) how a gas station uh, has has, uh, impacted my faith? Um, It's actually at the corner of 316 and 29. If you're driving out to the Holy Land, I'm sorry, I mean Athens, Georgia, (laughs) you'll you'll pass this intersection and uh, there is a QT, a quick trip there. And uh, it's really an ordinary QT. It's not even the newer version that has all like the fancy futuristic stuff. We're talking like 1993 quick trip. Um, They just, they've got the regular old griller items that are just rolling, you know, the taquitos and the hot dogs uh, all day, every day. It's just a normal gas station. But for me, but for me, it means so much more. Here's why. The summer before my senior year of high school, I was playing football, Gwinnett County. And that summer, all the teams would get together and practice against one each, uh, each, each other, one another. Um, and the place where we were doing it was Decula High School, which was right down the street from said gas station. And so there was all this excitement in me. I couldn't wait. It was my senior year. There was so much anticipation. And, you know, we're going, we're practicing these other teams. And so all I can think about is the fall. All I can think about is the fall. And it seems like it's a lifetime away. So we pass this gas station on the way over. And then when we're leaving, uh, we, we actually stop at that gas station. Our coach buys us Gatorades and sodas after that first practice. And I just remember thinking there's, the, the season's never going to get here. And every single week, every Tuesday night, we would drive out past this gas station. And I would be counting down in my mind. We're one week closer, one week closer, one week closer. And then the season starts, the fall gets going, fall semester of school, and we stop driving out there. And about three or four months later, I end up driving to Athens to see my brother. And when I do, I come up to that intersection and I see that quick trip. And I just think to myself, wow, four months have gone by. Like time has flown by. And in that moment, for whatever reason, I, was, I just thanked God for life. I thanked him for all he was doing in my life. My senior year had started, the, the football season had started. And I just gave thanks. God, thanks for all you're doing in my life. Fast forward about four months later, it's the spring of my senior year. 
And I'm driving up to Athens again and I pass that gas station in and I'm going, oh my gosh. I mean, like I'm about to graduate high school. This is crazy. And once again, I just paused and said, God, thank you. Thank you for all you're doing in my life. I end up getting accepted to Georgia and a couple months later in the summer, I, I drive up there for student orientation. I drive by the gas station in again. I'm going, I can't believe it. My senior year's done. I mean, it seems like just yesterday that we were driving out there to practice against those other teams. And now a whole year has gone by. God, thank you for all that you've done. And as you can imagine, as I went through my years at the University of Georgia, driving back and forth from home and to see friends and up and down 316, I would pass that gas station. And every time I did, every time I did, it would make me pause and thank God for life and all he was doing in my life. And over the last 20 years, as I've continued to drive back and forth, anytime I go by it, it just reminds me of the faithfulness of God. See, God took something ordinary and made it extraordinary in my life when his story intersected with mine. And there's so many different examples of this. Again, maybe you have examples in your life. And over the next three weeks in this series, we're going to look at something ordinary that turned extraordinary because it intersected with the story of God. We're going to look at the upper room. And if you're new to faith, new to Christianity, the upper room is the room where Jesus had his final meal with his disciples. And it really was a normal, ordinary, nothing special room. It was four walls and some furniture. There were thousands of rooms like this in Jerusalem in the first century. And it should have been lost to history thousands of years ago. Yet today, there are billions of people on the planet that are familiar with this one room. Why? How? Well, it's because the story of God intersected with it. It became included in the story of God and all of a sudden it became extraordinary. One of the things that's um, so special about the upper room is the timing. Where this takes place in Jesus's ministry. Jesus knew that the next day he was gonna be arrested. He was gonna be tried and ultimately crucified. And just think about that. If you... Uh, knew that you were going away tomorrow for a long time or maybe going away for good. And tonight you had one last meal, one last evening with those closest to you, with your spouse, with your kids, with your family, with your friends, with some group that you were close to. Think about how you would choose your words tonight. Wouldn't you choose them wisely? Wouldn't you want to make sure, hey, I'm, I'm going to be gone tomorrow, so I want to make sure I say what I need to say. I want them to know and, and remember what I want them to remember about me. This was the situation that Jesus was in with his disciples in the upper room. He knew he was going away. And he had been teaching them and leading them for three years. And so he knew he had one last classroom session with them in the upper room. That's why his teaching over these moments takes on so much emphasis. These are really, really heavy words from Jesus. They're really, really important words from Jesus. And it was his teaching in the upper room that made it not just an ordinary room, but an extra 
ordinary room. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about out of the ordinary, three lessons from the upper room. And again, you may be familiar with some of these. If you've been in church for a long time, you've been a Jesus follower for a long time. For some of you, it may be a reminder or some of you, you may be hearing it for the first time. But regardless of where you are in your journey with faith, I think there's something for all of us to learn. Now, a little background, a little setup to the upper room. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the four accounts we have of Jesus's life. And all four of them wrote about this evening, which means it was a really, really big deal if all four of them chose, hey, this is important enough to include in my account of Jesus's life. And they all wrote from different viewpoints and they all recounted various specifics about the evening. And they're all so powerful. We'll start with Matthew. Uh, they, They get into Jerusalem and it's time for the Passover meal. And so his disciples asked him, hey, where do you want us to set up the meal? We need a place to eat the Passover together. And Jesus replies to him, again, this is Matthew's account. Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. And he tells him to ask them, hey, can we have the Passover at your house. Now, the interesting thing is, is that Mark and Luke, they give a little bit more detail about this certain man that Matthew mentions. Here's what Luke says. And again, Luke's account and Mark's account are very close. Luke says this. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water. So it's not just any man out there. Obviously there were thousands of men in the city that day, but there'll be a certain man that's carrying a jar of water and he will meet you. So Mark and Luke give us the idea that, okay, this guy's gonna be on the lookout for you. He knows that you're coming. He knows to be looking for you. Continues. He says, follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house. So this man carrying the water is gonna be walking through town. You follow him. He's gonna take you to a house. You're gonna get there and talk to the owner of the house and tell him the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So it seems like Jesus has set all of this up on the front end. Somehow he's communicated, gotten it set up, and he's given his disciples the instructions. He says he will show you to a large room upstairs. And that's where we get the term upper room. It was upstairs at this man's house. He'll show you to a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. So they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. And this is just one sentence here, but there was so much that went into preparing a Passover meal. So Mark and Luke, they give more context than Matthew does. And and then John, well, the interesting thing about John is John doesn't mention any of this. Here's how John gets into the upper room and the last supper. He just says the evening meal was in progress. That's all we get from John. No, no detail about a man, a certain man, no detail about a man carrying a jar of water or going to the owner of the house or making preparations. He just jumps right in, says the evening meal was in progress, which I love this because it shows the humanity in the gospels, shows the personality that they have. And to me, I think it shows that they didn't make this up. You know, critics of Christianity, critics of the Bible will say, one of their arguments is, well, these were stories that were kind of concocted years later, decades later, centuries later, and and kind of started this religion out of it. It's just made up stories. But if that was the case, you'd have to explain an instance like this. 
and countless others throughout scripture. This is not what you would do if you were making up a story. What do you do when you're making up a story? You got to make sure your stories match, right? So you wouldn't get together and go, okay, how are we going to, you know, make this seem believable, you know? And then have John just completely leave it out and just dive right into the meal. So again, there's just beauty in the personality and the humanity that we see in the gospels. So we're going to go back to Luke for our first lesson from the upper room. And again, just for context, the disciples and Jesus have been making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And on their way there, they stopped in a little town called Bethany. This was the town that Lazarus was from. If you remember Lazarus earlier on in Jesus's ministry, he dies and Jesus shows up a couple days later and raises Lazarus from the dead. And then Lazarus just kind of went on with life, like living a normal life. And they're in Bethany and they're seated around the table having a meal. And it says that people just started showing up. The Gentiles started showing up and they wanted to see Jesus. But even more than that, they wanted to see Lazarus. I mean, can you just imagine like, okay, here's a guy that was dead and is now alive again. It's like, we want to talk to that guy. I want to hear like, what was his experience like? And so the disciples and Jesus are sitting there having this meal and all these people are showing up. There's all this popularity. They're really gaining steam. Everything is up and to the right for the disciples and Jesus. And they're probably, the disciples are thinking, oh yeah, here we go, here we go, here we go. And then they make their entrance into Jerusalem. And you may remember this from uh, when you were a child and you were growing up in church and you used to wave the, the, the palm fronds on Palm Sunday Historically, it's known as Palm Sunday in the church, but this is when Jesus and his disciples made their entrance into Jerusalem and everyone was cheering and they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And again, the disciples are probably thinking to themselves, yes, this is it. Finally, things are taking off for us. It's up and to the right. So they get into the city and disciples make preparations for Passover. The sun sets and the meal begins. And one of the first things Jesus does at the meal is he introduces this idea that the church has known for the last 200 years is communion or the Lord's Supper. He takes the priest of bread and he says, from now on, you're gonna remember me when you eat this bread. He takes the cup. He says, from now on, you're gonna remember me when you do this. And the disciples are thinking to themselves, oh yeah, here we go. Everything is up and to the right for them. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And it's like a, a record scratch. If this is a, a, a movie, this is where the music changes. Everybody starts looking around the table like, wait a second. One of you is going to betray me, Jesus says. Luke documents it this way. They begin to question among themselves, which of them it might be who would do this? Like, not me, not me, you know, not it, certainly not me. And then like out of this defense that they're all making for themselves, another dispute arises. Luke continues, he says, a dispute also arose. So while they're saying, hey, not me, not me, not me, they also start uh, disputing or arguing about among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. And this word greatest here means precedence, who takes precedence over the others. Who's the best, who's better than the rest. So not me, not me, not me turned into, look at me. Wait a second, look at me. Wait a second, look at me. And I don't know how it played out 
uh, in that conversation, but I'm guessing John might've been like, hey, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know? That's the way John referred to himself when he wrote his gospel, which is another funny human part of his gospel as he wouldn't ever say the disciple John. He would always say the disciple whom Jesus loved. So John's probably making that argument with the other guys at the table. And then Peter jumps in and he's, he's probably like, well, well, didn't you hear Jesus a couple weeks ago uh, when, when he said, Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. So I mean, he, Jesus is going to build his church on me. So I'm probably the greatest guys. Okay. And then Judas, Judas jumps in. He's like, well, hey, listen, I'm about to, no, he probably didn't do that. Judas um, had other, other plans. Meanwhile, Jesus is listening to this take place. He's sitting there at the meal and I, I can only imagine, but I'm guessing that his hand was probably, his head was probably in his hand and he's like, you guys, really? Like really, John? Really, Peter? Really, Matthew? I mean, Matthew, you were a tax collector. I don't think you need to be arguing at all. Like I rescued you and saved you and called you to come follow me out of being a tax collector. And you're gonna jump in this argument as well? Guys, have you not been listening the last three years as we traveled the countryside and you've heard me teach and you've seen me care for the least of these? No idea what Jesus was thinking in that moment as they're arguing who's the greatest. But what's interesting is, don't we all have a tendency to do this? At times in our lives, we will feel the need to promote our greatness. We'll feel the need to maybe make ourselves look a little bit smarter, a little bit better, a little bit stronger, a little bit greater. I did this while I was preparing for this message. How twisted is that? couple weeks ago, we're, we're at a, a big meeting with all of our staffs from all of our churches and they were doing this thing on stage and it was just, it was just killing it. It was great. It was going great on stage. And, and I start to text someone on my team that, Hey, like I was, I kind of helped. That was my idea. You know, I kind of helped create that, like what's going on what everybody's laughing at. Everybody's enjoying it so much. Just so you know, you know, that kind of, I kind of had something to do with that. I literally craft this text. I wrote the whole thing. And thankfully, before hitting send, I thought about it. I highly recommend thinking before you hit send. That is a, if you get nothing else today, that's something you can take with you. But literally, it dawned on me. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is exactly what I'm about to speak about. This is what we do. We, We try to promote our greatness. We try to make ourselves look a little bit bigger, a little bit better, a little bit stronger. I don't know how it plays out for you. Maybe it's in conversations with others. Maybe it's at work, in the break room, over email. Maybe it's the humble brag on social media, like we're living our best life, hashtag crushing it. Oh yeah, you know. (laughs) But we're all tempted to do it. Exactly what the disciples were doing, sitting there with Jesus. And Jesus had already been tempted in this way. If you rewind in Luke's account, in Luke chapter four, Jesus is in the desert. He's being tempted by the devil. And the devil keeps saying to him, if you're the son of God, prove it. If you're the son of God, prove it. Prove your greatness, Jesus. He was tempted multiple times in this way. And so he knew what you and I face. And he knew what the disciples were facing in this moment. 
And so he responds to this argument that's going on. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. This word lord here is the idea of mastery, of control, of manipulation. It's the idea of a, of a puppet master, you know, with the strings kind of moving and shaping and manipulating. And it's, it's lording it over them for their own satisfaction, for their own good, for their own benefit. They lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Now this word here means that they do it for the good of the others. So they're calling themselves great people, but yet they're lording their authority over them. They're manipulating and controlling for their own benefit, but then turning around and saying, no, no, I'm a benefactor. I am, I am doing it for the people. This would have been infuriating in the first century. But this, this is the way the world works, isn't it? Not just the first century. I mean, today, when people get control, when they get authority, their temptation is to lord it over those who they have the authority over. This wasn't just a first century thing. And so Jesus looks his disciples in the eye and as direct and as clear as he can be. He says, but you, but you, the world looks one way. The world acts one way. The world is always going to tempt you in one direction. But you, you are not to be like that. If you're a follower of me, if you're a part of my kingdom, if you want to bring my kingdom to earth, you are not to be like that. You are not to be like that. Instead, instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And in this culture, age brought with it respect and authority. In fact, age would trump a lot of other things and conditions in life. Not so in, in, in our world today as much. But back then, if someone was older than you, then you owed them respect and you owed them authority. And Jesus is flipping things upside down here. He's saying, hey, if you're the greatest, you need to act like the youngest. You need to look at everyone else in the room with respect and authority. The greatest of you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. If you rule, if you should have some authority in life, you should serve. You shouldn't be able to tell the difference. For them, this was a, a massive, massive difference. Those who ruled looked a lot different than those who served. They, they may have even been surrounded with servants at this meal. They would have had a physical representation of this right in front of them. And Jesus was saying, if, if you rule, if you have some sort of authority, you should be like one who serves. You shouldn't be able to tell the difference. This reminds me of uh, that show, uh, Undercover Boss. 
Has anybody seen that show at some point? It's in its 11th season. Um, and some of you may be like just huge fans of Undercover Boss. Maybe you've never seen the show at all. But the premise is this, that they take uh, the CEOs and presidents and founders of these huge companies, Fortune 500 companies, and they disguise them. They'll put on a wig, they'll put glasses on, makeup, whatever it is. And then they send them to the front lines of the organization Um, and uh, they end up filming the whole thing. They'll tell the employees that, hey, we're gonna do this documentary. They'll make up some sort of story as to why all these cameras are here and why this new person's coming in. Like, hey, we're gonna shoot a documentary on how we train our people. And so they show up and then you just, you know, know, there's so many great moments in a show like this, but um, I love it particularly when um, the, the manager you know, is, is like introducing some of the new stuff to the person and they like start to get on to them. They're like, hey, you're not doing that right, you know? And it gets a little heated and like you're thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, this is the CEO of the company that they're talking to that way. You know, your palms start to sweat a little bit for that person. Like, are they gonna have a job when all this is said and done? And then the other piece is, is that the, 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 the CEO will, will oftentimes talk about how hard the work is and how much more respect they have for the people in their company. But what's so amazing about the show is that the CEO is the greatest. They're the greatest in the company. They're the greatest in the company, but employees can't tell because they're serving. They're the greatest in the company. They're the CEO, they're the founder, they're the president, but employees can't tell because they're serving. Jesus is saying, that's the way your life should be. That's the way your life should be. Be an undercover boss. Don't spend your life trying to prove how great you are. You will be tempted in that direction, guaranteed. Every one of us will be. But instead, prove how great you are by how much you serve. Jesus is saying, hey, wherever, wherever you're the boss, where, wherever you're the boss, don't give it away. Don't give it away. The one who rules should be like the one who serves. And, and you may hear that and go, well, I'm not the boss of anything. Well, you're the boss of something. You have influence somewhere in your life. You have spheres of influence in your life. Some sort of authority. And Jesus is saying, whatever authority you have, use it to serve others. One of the ways this plays out for me is as a dad. I've got four sons and I catch myself when I think about it in these terms, I catch myself all the time trying to like, I look like one of my sons and I'm like, okay, I wanna impart all this life knowledge that I have, you know, cause I've lived a lot of years and I've kind of figured a lot of things out. And, and the temptation is let me show how great I am to my son. And what I'm discovering is a better question to ask is how can I serve my son? What would it look like to serve him in this moment. Not make it all about me and hey, you know, when I played high school football and you know, when I, you know, listen to this story from way back when, you know, it's how can I serve my son in this moment? That's what Jesus is talking about. 
And again, I don't know where you're the boss. I don't know where this would play out for you. Maybe it's with your kids. Maybe it's with your spouse. Maybe it's with a group of friends and you're hanging out and you're tempted to do that humble brag. You're tempted to make yourself look a little bit better, a little bit stronger, a little bit greater. Instead, ask the question, what would it look like to serve the people at this table? When you do this, when you do this, you will live out of the ordinary. We know what the ordinary looks like. Living in Jesus's kingdom is out of the ordinary. Great example of this every week around here is the hundreds and hundreds of people who serve in our environments and throughout our halls, serve students, they serve kids, serve adults. And I could share a bunch of different stories about some of the amazing undercover bosses that we have here at Browns Bridge. I wanna share one with you this morning. Mr. Gary um, has served for years in Upstreet. And he is a greeter, which means uh, he, he's at a certain grade, at a certain room, and he checks all the kids from that grade. He checks them in, has his clipboard. In fact, Gary was the greeter for my twins when they went from kindergarten all the way up through fifth grade. And he just finished his uh, fifth grader with his fifth graders this past year. And Gary thought, okay, I'm done for a while. I think, you know, I've, I need to do something different or I don't know if they need me anymore. And, and then he got a letter from one of the girls that was checked in every week by him in Upstreet. Here's what she wrote. Mr. Gary, two R's. I love that, by the way. Mr. Gary, thank you for always checking me in since I was five. Thanks for being a smiling face every Sunday. You really make Brownsbridge feel like home from Sarah. Sarah just moved into the sixth grade. And from kindergarten to fifth grade, Gary checked her in. And so she wanted to thank Gary for what he did. And I imagine Gary's had some important roles through the years. He's probably had some important jobs and he's probably been the boss of a lot of different things. But my guess is if, if Gary could stand on this stage today, he would say none is more rewarding than this right here. Be an undercover boss. Find a place to serve. And here at Brownsbridge, we are entering into a season where um, we're needing some more undercover bosses. In just a few months, we'll promote our students in the summer. And this fall, we'll promote all of our upstreet age kids, our Wombaland age kids. And so we're in a season of recruitment for our next wave of volunteers. And I wanna ask you as your pastor, if you call this church home and you're not serving anywhere, would you be an undercover boss? Would you step up and serve in some way? We've got a variety of different roles. You may say, well, I can't be a small group leader. That's fine. You say, well, you know what? I really wanna stand out front and just greet people. Well, you can, you can do that. We've got, if you wanna be a smiling face, if you wanna be a small group leader, or if you wanna be back in a room by yourself, serving you know, with no one else, we probably have an opportunity for you as well. There is an opportunity for everyone. So we're gonna put a QR code up here. I want you to scan this QR code. And you're just gonna put your name, your email in there and one of our staff people is gonna reach back out to you with a little bit more information of what it would look like to investigate, to explore 
serving with us in this next season. It's not going to happen for several months. You don't start until the summer or until the fall. And this is not going to commit you to anything. This is just going to get you more information around about what it would look like. Take advantage of one of those opportunities to be an undercover boss every Sunday here at Brownsbridge. If you're watching online today, we want you to participate as well. You can go to brownsbridge.org slash serve, brownsbridge.org slash serve, or you can scan this QR code as well. But we want this for a couple reasons. Number one, we want to continue to be the greatest church that we can be in this community. We want to be a place where people can show up who are far from God, disconnected from church, not sure if they fit in, not sure if they belong and they are welcomed here and they feel at home here and their kids love it here. And their kids go, hey, mom, dad, will you bring me back to Brownsbridge next week? We wanna create that kind of environment and we need you to do that. And that's important. But even more important than that is the opportunity that it gives you to grow in your faith. When God uses something you're doing to grow someone else's faith, it grows your faith. It's a catalyst to your faith. And we, want, we don't wanna miss out. We don't want you to miss out on what it could do in your life and in your journey as well. So be an undercover boss. Live out of the ordinary. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for these scriptures, these accounts of Jesus's life, the detail, um, the weight of them is just extraordinary, God. And thank you that you preserved them for thousands of years that we could peer into them today and learn from them today. And God, what a, um, what a challenging statement you made when on the night before your death, you told your disciples, the greatest among you will be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. As followers of you, we want to do this. We want to live this out, but we just confess that we can't do it on our own. We need your help. We're all tempted to make our name great, to make ourselves better. And we need your help to live this out. So God, wherever we are today, would you help us to take those steps and to follow you and to serve in that way. In Jesus' name, amen.